You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. All right, um, so because of humanity's fallen nature, our love is self-centered. It's through the influence of sin in this world, the love has kind of become the opposite of what it was intended. It's supposed to be something that we do for somebody else. But instead, love has become corrupted uh, to be a feeling someone else gives us. Kind of the opposite. It's supposed to be about others. And we've turned love into something about ourselves. Um, so I subscribed to Cosmo magazine. Okay, very good. I was hoping someone would laugh because I'm joking. I don't. But uh, I just uh, Googled this. I was thinking you know, about love and how love has kind of become opposite to what it's supposed to be. And love and marriage go together. So why should I get married? I typed in the Googles. And I found this article in Cosmo. So I don't subscribe. But uh, it's just on the internet. And so if you're wondering if you should get married, here's what Cosmo has to say. Six reasons why you should get married. You're more likely to stick out tough times. You'll feel and act like a team. You'll become more relaxed and grounded. It shows how important your partner is. There are practical benefits like tax breaks, health care, etc. And statistically, more sex. Uh, So, and all the advice you find on the internet about if you should get married is really about is your partner right for you, not are you right for your partner. You see, the, the opposite of love. It's supposed to be something you do for someone, not a feeling someone else gives you. And this is uh, me, Adrian, and I have been married, what, eight years in August, I believe? Yeah, yep, very good. Uh, and really the first five or so years of that, when we weren't Christians, we had, you know, good up and down times, but not the greatest marriage because we were... We didn't have that foundation of biblical love. We were all about, I wanted to marry Adrian because she could make me happy the rest of my life. And she said the same thing, that she wanted to marry me because I could make her happy. It wasn't, I want to marry her because I can serve her and love her, and you know, vice versa, which is the true essence of love. And so what I'm saying is that our love has been sort of turned opposite through sin and corruption to what it's supposed to be. And here, the, the problem with this is that influences how we see God. Because we think love is something, a feeling someone else gives us, not something we do for someone else. We see God in that way as well. And so, we see God's love in selfish terms, like we have love in selfish terms. Not that God loves us, but that we uh, have to earn His love, because we make people earn our love. So when we look at love as something that's given to us, it corrupts our view of God's love. Now, love doesn't start with us. It starts with God. And He loved us first. And that's what we're going to look at today. And looking, well, we have this problem again, that love, our love is self-centered, so we see the love of God 
as being about us first, but it's not. So I'm about to say probably the three most profound words we could say, uh, probably the most important description of God in the entire Bible. We're going to read that tonight. It's God is love. It's super important. And probably the most important description of love or description of God in the Bible, God is love. And we get to read about that tonight, so it's very exciting. And this is huge. And this, through this lens that God is love, completely changes the way that we view God. And really, as far as I can tell, I mean, I'm not a huge, I don't know everything about every other religion, but as far as I can tell, Christianity is the only God who makes this claim, the Christian God, that he is a loving God uh, just out of his own nature, not because of something people do for him. And uh, kind of like we talked about last week, everyone has this desire to be connected to God. People always say, well, if God's a loving God, then dot, dot, dot. That idea of loving God comes from the God of the Bible, because no other God, as far as I know, makes that claim, that God is love. And this is huge. So we're going to explore that idea tonight. First, uh, we'll just read the whole section. This is one of the most powerful sections of Scripture, in my opinion. really lays out the entire Gospel, um, how we see God, how He sees us, and it's amazing. We joke it. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Um, so it's in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7 and just read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll explore this idea that God is love. So starting in verse 7 of chapter 4 in 1 John, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Again, this is one of my favorite sections of scripture. And so we read it and good night. I mean, it says it all right there. Now we'll we'll explore this. I mean, but this, it lays out the gospel Oh, how we know our salvation, how that all works, but God is love. Before we jump into God is love, let's first dispel some misconceptions or misunderstandings about that statement. Again, probably the most important statement about God in all of Scripture, and people, like anything about God, uh, misinterpret this or 
uh, skew this or make it fit their own agenda. So there's a few first false ideas about this before I jump into what it says here. So first of all, sometimes people say that because God is love, love is God. Like it's, what's the math thing where it's like, if 2x equals 4, then 4 equals 2x, you know? Math? I don't know. Put you on the spot. It's some property in math. I don't know. Yeah, this is, we're talking about Jesus. We don't need to talk about math right now. Uh, but people think because it's God is love, that love is God, that it's the same thing. And that is not true. Um, so love is an attribute of God. And this is very important. God, theologians have d- described God with several attributes that we find in the scriptures. For example, like he's omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent. He's all-present. He's everywhere. And love is an attribute of God. It's not the totality of God. Saying that love is God, or it means that love, some weird force out there, is God. And that's not God. God is a personal God, not some force. Okay, but this is one of God's attributes. So, uh, just like God's omniscience is an attribute of Him, He's always omniscient. He's always all-knowing. There's not a time when God is not omniscient. And same with love. There's not a time when God is not love. So this statement that God is love, we see God through that lens with everything He does. Because there's never a time when God is not love. But it's important if God is love, it doesn't mean that love is God. And that makes love an idol. And this is when people say, it's all fair, all's fair in love and war. And, uh, well, God would want me to do this because it's love. And people, I put love as an idol. And saying that love is God, that makes love, love is not God. God is love. So that's very important. Uh, seg- secondly, people uh, have issues with the statement, God is love. Because, like I said, we see love in a self-centered way. And we take that definition, and then people judge God on our definition of love. And not basing it on Him, but on us. And we're self-centered in our love. This is very popular to do today, to sort of put God on trial. And I'm going to judge God because on my definition of love. And say, well, if God is love, why does He send people to hell? And we'll talk about that later. And if God is love, why did He kill so many people in the Old Testament? And people put God on trial and judge Him by our standard of love. And, I mean, it's a, it is a valid question, and it is sometimes hard you know, to, to understand or explain why, uh, you know, when God, people, uh, God judges people in the Old Testament, we see a lot, and lots of people die. And I used to say this before I became a Christian, you know, that's not a loving God. See, I always knew that God is loving, because that's who He is, even when I didn't know God. Um, but now when I read the Old Testament, I see God's patience. And it's always, He always gives people a chance to repent. But here's kind of the big thing, just you know, to, to cover that, is I explain it like this to the youth group, because they're kids. And a lot of times when you're a teenager, and your parents do something that you don't understand, doesn't make sense to you as a teenager or a kid growing up, and if we don't even understand from that perspective, from a kid to a parent, how can we understand everything about God? with our limited knowledge of Him and our limited knowledge of love and through our corrupted nature. I mean, we, I don't even want to worship a God I can fully understand because then He's too simple. He's too much like us and we're sinful. So we can't come up with our self-centered definition of love and then judge God on that because He sets the standard, not us. And that's when people say, if God is love and blah, 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 that's what is going on here. Um, another thing 
misinterpretation of God and love is, well, saying God is love is different than saying God loves. Because that's an action that he does. Like if you would say God creates or God does whatever, God is love. It's part of who he is. It's his nature. It's one of his attributes. It's not just something he does. It's who he is. And so just wanted to talk about those things before I jumped into what exactly that means that God is love. Because this is hugely important and amazing. Uh, so we'll see in this section of scripture where it talks about God is love. We'll see uh, two things that it means that God is love. I mean, it means everything, really. But in this section, two things. And then two results or outcomes of that. So the first uh, thing that it means that God is love is the big one. Is that God sent his son into the world. This is what it says in verses 7 through 11. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so the first thing that God is love is he sent his son into the world. And why did he do this? In this section, these verses, we have three reasons why God did that. First of all, to manifest his love. Like it says in verse 9, uh, And this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. And to manifest something means to make it known or to show it. And again, this is huge. This is God is love, so he sent his son into the world. Why? That's to show us his love. That he doesn't just say it and say, good luck you guys. He sends his son to fix our problems, to be the sacrifice for our sins. And this is where the love of God is most clearly shown. If God would say, you're all sinful, I mean you've all chosen sin, and good luck, maybe you can earn your way to heaven, then that's not love. But when he says, you have sinned, you've fallen short of my standards, you are not worthy of my love, but I am love, so I'm sending you my son to back that up. That is love. God is love because he sent his son into the world. And it's not just Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, but it's his entire life. The fact that he came to this earth, and that Jesus has always been God, God the Son in eternity, and left all that to come to this earth, to fix our sin problem, to give us a solution to this, to show us his love. And this is what Christianity is all about. This is, I mean, this is what backs it up. This is the most loving thing, the thing that most clearly shows God's love, that he sent his son into the world to live a perfect, sinless life under the, with the power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, under the law. And Jesus he always is God and he remained God, but he put that aside when he became a person and lived primarily through the power of the Holy Spirit as a human, fully man and fully God, as we talked about last week. And as a human, he never sinned. And this is huge, because if he sinned, he's not a perfect sacrifice for us. And in order to pay for sin, we'll uh, look at that more in a minute, but it requires a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. And Jesus didn't have to do any of this. This is why it is love. I mean, we kind of just say, oh, Jesus died for my sins, you know, whatever. It's, 
it's important, but we say it just so matter-of-factly. And not, and this may be me, maybe it's not everyone, but we kind of think, again, because our love is self-centered, that we somehow earned that or take it for granted that he would even do that. God did not have to do that, but because God is love, he sent his son to fix our problems. And, and so he had to, God had to become a man in order to die, to be a sacrifice, because God doesn't die, he's eternal. But when God becomes a man, fully man and fully God, he's able to be a sacrifice. But because he's God, he also has the authority to forgive our sins, and also the authority to defeat death and resurrect and prove he conquered sin and death, and uh, show us that he is love, to provide us an answer to our sin problems, because he's love. Uh, so secondly... God sends His Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is in verse 10. This is an amazing verse. There's so many amazing verses in this section of Scripture. But verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, so, I mean, here, what I'm talking about, our love tends to be self-centered. And we think we have to earn love's God or it's something we deserve says, and this is love, not that we love God. Our love for God has nothing to do with it, really. It's that God loved us and sent His Son. And this is, again, Christianity is all about this. It's not that we loved God first. He loved us first. And because He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And here's a fancy word, propitiation. Here's what it means. Uh, it appeased God's wrath. And it goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, before Jesus came to fully pay for our sins, God always provided a way of uh, redemption or atonement. And in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, it was through the sacrifice of animals. And people would, Israelites, he told them to confess their sins on two animals without spot or blemish. And this is huge. I mean, it's all a picture of Jesus. And on one of them was called the scapegoat. And they'd confess their sins on that, that goat. And uh, then they'd set him free to show that their sins are gone from them, that their uh, sins aren't on them anymore. It's called expiation theologically. So that's the scapegoat. But then they had the sacrificial goat, the one who was slaughtered, and they did the same thing. They would confess their sins, uh, put them on this goat, so to speak. And it wasn't just, oh, here's some random animal, let's kill it. It was the best one without spot or blemish. And the Bible, I mean, you, they would... Like, get down on their level, look them in the eye, identify with this animal, and really, truly put their faith in believing that by confessing their sins onto this animal and then sacrificing it, that that's how God would forgive them, because the wages of sin is death. Sin requires a payment, and that payment is death. And someone, someone or something has to die to pay for sin. Now, animals could never pay for sins, it says in Hebrews. Uh, they covered it. They atoned for it. But that, uh, anyway... When they would confess their sins on that goat, one of them they'd set free and one would be slaughtered, would be killed. And that blood would pay for or cover their sin. And that was the propitiation, that goat, because it absorbed God's wrath. God's wrath is his hatred of sin. And instead of God's wrath being upon them, it was on that goat and then it was killed. Now it says, Jesus becomes our propitiation. He's the one that God poured all of his wrath onto so that he wouldn't pour his wrath onto us. Uh, so we could be free from his wrath. We wouldn't have to experience it. We wouldn't have to go through any of 
whatever his wrath is going to be, which ultimately ends up uh, in hell. We'll talk more about that later. But that's what it means that Jesus is our propitiation. He satisfies God's hatred for sin, because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So just like people confess their sins onto that goat and then kill it, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin. Our sin was put on him, just like their sins were put on the goat. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so we could become righteous, because he was murdered and killed. And that was our propitiation. God's wrath does not have to be on us anymore if we accept that sacrifice, if we confess our sins onto him. And then his righteousness is given to us. It's the great exchange, and that's another huge verse in Second Corinthians, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so we could become righteous. And again, it's not that we love God. We did nothing to earn this. This is what makes our God different than false gods. This is love. Not that we loved him, but God loved us. He did that out of grace. That's God's unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We did nothing to ever earn God's favor because we've all chosen sin and uh, sin is contrary to God. But because He is love and because it's not based on us, it's based on Him, He sent His Son to be that sacrifice, to be the propitiation, to absorb the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, so that we are not punished. We do not experience God's wrath because it's been paid for. And so... That's, why, that's how Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And why? Again, why did he send God, his Son into the world thirdly? So that we might live through him. It says in verse 9, um, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And so we live through him in this life, but also eternally. That's the outcome of Jesus' sacrifice, is we have eternal life. Because we didn't earn it, but God is love. So he provided us the way. We don't, have, we don't earn it. There's no way we can earn it because we cannot be the perfect sacrifice. We're already covered with sin. It takes God to do that. And he did it because he is love. So Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. And uh, probably, I mean, it's, it's pretty cliche way to, to explain this. Uh, but when I think of sacrifice, the, probably the most noble sacrifice or one of them is when people in war will jump on a grenade and absorb the blow so as to save you know, his fellow soldiers around him. And almost always that person dies. So you can be, you know, like Bruno Mars wrote a song about that, right? Remember? Uh, grenade. And uh, he said he'd catch a grenade for whoever he's singing about. But then he says, I should have brought you flowers. I mean, that's not catching a grenade. If you won't even buy your flowers, Bruno, come on. But, I mean, people aren't like Bruno Mars. And some people actually do this. They sacrifice themselves by jumping on the grenade to absorb it, to save them, to be that sacrifice. Uh, and there's a, a guy in World War II named Jack Lucas who actually did this twice at Iwo Jima and survived it. As, uh, he was 17 years old and he jumped on two grenades to save his fellow soldiers. And he ended, he, he's one of the few people that survived doing that. And he got the Medal of Honor. He's the youngest person in the uh, Marines to receive the Medal of Honor. He was only 17 and he lived the rest of his life with 200 pieces of shrapnel in him and to save his fellow soldiers, to jump on the grenade, to sacrifice himself for that. And that's, that's amazing, and there's nothing to discredit that or anything. But what if he did that for the enemies? 
That's what God did for us. We were His enemies. And we sinned. And God didn't absorb or sacrifice Himself. Jesus Christ did not do that because we were so great, because we're on His side. He did it because we are His enemies before we come to Him. Because we are sinful and we are corrupted. And we all chose that. And we were His enemies. It says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this, this is huge. This is, I mean, I would have, when I think back on before I became a Christian, uh, I've said it a few times, I, I kind of grew up in going to a church but never really believing in it, and then eventually becoming full-on atheist and being God's enemy and wanting to be that way because I was completely against it. And when I came to Christ, when I repented of my sin and saw the truth, I didn't have to do anything to prove I was worthy of it. I mean, he accepted me right there because he died for me while I was still a sinner. I wasn't on his side and he died. He absorbed the blow, the wrath of God so that I could become his child. And yeah, this is the gospel message. I didn't have to do anything. And then we kind of think, well, now I have to do something because now I've experienced his love. But it's never like that. His love never depends on anything we do. That's self-centered. God's love is Him. God is love. And He always loved us because He died for us while we were sinners. We don't have to do anything to come to Him. And we don't have to prove ourselves because He already did it. The offer is open to anybody. Unconditionally. You just have to accept it. Just like any gift, you need to accept a gift before it does anything to you. And that's God is love. And now it's interesting, John, we talked, we talked about it as we studied through First John. He says it over and over, to love one another. So we're not going to hit on it in a lot of depth tonight, because we already have. But in verse 11, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And he, according to John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our response to God's love for us, that he sacrificed himself to pay for our sins, is not to love Him, although we should. I mean, obviously, we love Him back. But He says because God loved us, we ought to love one another. And we've talked about that, and this comes up over and over in this letter about loving one another. If God loved us that much, that He would sacrifice Himself for us, we can't just sit here and say, all right, cool, and do our own little thing and not really get involved in each other's life. Because if God did that for us, we would be hopeless. And John says our response to that love is to love one another, our fellow Christians, not just the people here, but all of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And it's very important to remember that. And it comes up tons of times in this letter. And so because God is love, he sent his son into the world. That's the biggest statement of his love. But secondly, because God is love, he's given us his spirit. And this is what John talks about in... Uh, verses 12 through 16. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. And so because God is love, he sent his Son. 
and his son died to pay for our sins, resurrected to prove it was a worthy sacrifice, that our sins are forgiven. But then 40 days later, Jesus leaves. He goes back to heaven. He ascends to heaven and remains fully man and fully God and rules and reigns in heaven. And one day he'll return. But he says he's not going to leave us without a helper. And that's the Holy Spirit. And he says it's to our benefit that he leaves because then God comes to live in us. Like it says right here. Um, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So when we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, the third member of the Trinity. It's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, who comes to live in us when we accept Jesus' payment for our sins. And that's another way that shows God is love, what he says right here. And so what happens when God has given us his Spirit? And first of all, in verses 12 and 14, John says that we show God to the world. And in verse 12 it says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Then 14, verse 14, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. So just like God sent his Son to manifest his love, that he is love, we, through the work of the Holy Spirit, show the world that God is love because God is living in us. Um, it's kind of like a telescope. To a lot of people, God is far away. Somewhere out there, a lot of people believe in a God somewhere out in the universe, but he doesn't really care. But because God comes to live in his people and they accept his son's sacrifice and sends the Holy Spirit to live in us, and we live our lives as we should, I mean, as best as we're able, through the Holy Spirit, I and mean, we're not going to be perfect, but when we live according to loving one another and loving our neighbor and loving God with all our mind, soul, and strength. That's how, like a telescope, we make a distant God seem near to people. And John says over and over, well, it's Jesus says in the Gospel of John, the best way for the world to know that the Father sent him is the love we have for one another. And so when the Holy Spirit lives in us, we show God to the world. And uh, that's why it's important, again, to love one another and to let the Holy Spirit lead our lives and be the thing that empowers us to love one another. Now secondly, what happens when God gives us His Holy Spirit, this, this is amazing. When I first read this, I mean, it made a lot of things clear for me. In verses 13 and 16, it talks about our salvation is guaranteed when the Holy Spirit enters us. It says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we know our, we have our salvation when we know the Holy Spirit is living in us. In verse 16, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. And when the Holy Spirit enters us, when we repent of our sins, when we first give our lives to Jesus to follow him, not just to say, oh yeah, there's a God out there somewhere, and he paid for my sins, so now I can do whatever I want. But when we lay down our lives for him and say, Jesus, your life is mine, and we repent of our sins, and ask for Him to lead us, and we receive the Holy Spirit, our salvation is guaranteed because God is love. He doesn't remove that from us because He is displeased with us. He loves us unconditionally. It's the self-sacrificial love, the agape love. And we talked about a few weeks ago that we're His children. Your children don't do things to lose love for you. You just love them because they're your kids. And we become, become God's children 
through Jesus' adoption, uh, he adopts us into God's family through the Holy Spirit. So our salvation is guaranteed. When we know we have the Holy Spirit living in us, and we know that because our lives change. Some of the things we used to take pride in doing that were sinful, now we start to become ashamed of them. Some of the things that we used to not care about but were sinful, now we start to, you know, oh, that's sinful. I don't want to do that. I don't agree with that. So we start to love what God loves, hate what God hates. We want to please God because not because we need to earn His love, but because He is love and we already have it. So becoming a Christian is, cha- is changing because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so when that starts to happen, you know you have your salvation because that's what the Bible says. And God doesn't lie is another attribute of God. It says elsewhere in the New Testament. So when it says, we know we abide in God, when the Holy Spirit lives in us, we can always trust in that because it's a promise. God's promises are always true. And even if we doubt that and even if we sin, as long as we repent of that and, and we don't just walk in sin and not care, I mean, then we're living according to the Spirit, and God loves us. I mean, it talks about this in a couple places in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, He who establishes us with you in Christ and has appointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And again, when the Holy Spirit enters you, you know your salvation is secure. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And... uh not even sin, and not even, as long as we are repentant of it. And nothing can separate us from that love, and it's a guarantee. In Ephesians it says, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of purchased possession, to the praise of His glory. And because God is love, again, He sends us the Holy Spirit to be our helper, for God to live in us and work through us and empower us to love one another and obey Him. And again, that proves we have our salvation. And again, we might question this, but these are God's promises, and they're always sure, and we will never... I I don't know, it gets into a whole other category of things. Well, what if... I mean, what if you do this? We've talked about it through 1 John. If you walk in sin, continuous, unrepentant, willful sin, and you don't care, that's something else. That's probably an indicator the Holy Spirit never entered you, and it was just fake, even if you believed it. But if you run your race through to the end, and always even, I mean, again, we're going to sin, but we're going to want to repent because we love God and because God is love. And we always have our salvation. To lose our salvation, Hebrew says, and then gain it back, is like to crucify Jesus twice. He died once to pay for our sins forever. So when we accept that and the Holy Spirit enters us, we always have our salvation. And that happens by giving our life to Him. And it's not, I believe there's a Jesus, now I can do whatever I want. But it's picking up your cross and dying daily and living for Him. That's what it means to believe in Him. It's to trust in Him. And not whatever people, people do that a lot. That's what I did when I was in high school. And then that didn't do anything because then I became fully atheist after that. Uh, and then, like I said, God lives in you. And we see that throughout this section. That's what empowers us as Christians. We can never do, I mean, we still can never do the things God asks. That's why he's so great, because we need to rely on him. But he also provides us the way to do it through the Holy Spirit. Because when we're obedient to that, then we're going to do what God asks of us. And how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, I've already talked about a little bit. 
But it says in verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. Again, it confesses in the Greek uh, means more like uh, agree with. Uh, whoever agrees with God that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the one who's paid for our sins, then uh, God abides in him. So we don't ever have to doubt our salvation because God loves us enough to send us his spirit. And we've seen in First John there's a whole ton of tests for if this is happening, then you're one of God's children. If not, then you're not. But we've you know, seen that a lot. Um, but if, wait, where am I going? I don't know. Whatever. God is love. And he does this because he loves us and uh, not because we loved him or deserved it, but because he's love. So those are two things uh, that God demonstrates his love toward us. Now let's look at two results of that, or two outcomes. Okay, first of all, uh, because God is love, we no longer have to fear God. Okay, and this is in verses 17 through 19. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And so there's fear of God in a reverent sense. I mean, Proverbs says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And that's good fear. That's not being afraid of him, but knowing God for who he is, uh, being reverent toward him. This is talking about fear in a scared sense. And it says uh, that we don't have to be afraid because fear involves torment. And he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And what we're talking about here is the context is judgment. That we don't have to be afraid in the day of judgment because God is love, because he sent his son to pay for our sins, to be our propitiation. When we accept that, we no longer have to fear death and fear judgment because to live is Christ, to die is gain. And judgment is also God is love. And again, it's like I said at the beginning, people put God on trial and say, if God is love, how can he send people to hell? And that the people have problems reconciling that. And again, it is a valid question, and it's hard maybe to understand, especially as a non-Christian. It's one of the questions I would have had. Um, but again, God is always love. That's who he is. He's not loving sometimes and then just other times. Yeah, his justice is through his love. And that's what judgment is. And so... How does judgment have to do with the fact that God is love? First of all, remember, God defines love, not us. So when we put God on trial and say that, we're judging him by our standard of love, which we've already seen is imperfect and corrupted, and we don't you know, get all that. But secondly, here's a big thing. You can avoid it. I mean, if you're very concerned with how can God be loving and still send people to hell, you don't have to go there. That's why he is loving, because he is love, he gives people a way out of it. I mean, you don't have to go to hell. You don't have to experience his wrath because Jesus paid for it. I mean, again, sin is, it's like a debt. The wages of sin is death. Where there's wages, there's a debt. And if, uh, if the bank wanted to pay for my house and get rid of all my debt, hey, that'd be great. I'd probably just want to accept that. But to reject that is like rejecting Jesus. To say, uh, <clears throat> You know what, bank? I'm, I'm mad there's a debt anyway. You should just forgive it for no reason. And just, you know, they're willing to pay for it. And same way with God. He is paying for your debt. 
And to reject that would be just, I mean, more foolish than rejecting someone paying for your monetary debt on principle because you're mad there's a debt in the first place. Hey, yes, there is a debt because we've chosen sin. God did not create sin. He did not create us to sin. He created us with a free will that could choose to sin. But then he also, because he is love, gave us a way to avoid it, to pay for our debt. So if it seems unloving that people go to hell, well, you don't have to go there. That's why God is love, because he provided us a way out that we can never earn on our own. Um, additionally, hell is eternal separation from God. It's being separated from God for all eternity, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, conscious eternal torment. It's not just where you get to hang out with all the fun people and people say that, like go, go to hell for the company or whatever people say. I mean, it's not just a big party down there. I mean, Satan doesn't rule hell. Jesus does. Hell was made for Satan. And this is where people, if you want to be separated from God now, in this life, even though you have the ability to be connected with Him, God is giving you what you want. If you want to be separated from Him now, I mean, if you're hardening your heart, it's just like with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And God is just giving people what they want. It's not that He sends people there. It's you've neglected the payment. And again, you don't have to go there. But if you want to be separated from God, that's Again, God will give you over to that. That's what the Bible says. And that's what it means to, to go to hell. And uh, finally, I mean, here's kind of the big thing. If heaven is for good people, like people say a lot of the times, um, you know, I'm a good person. I think God will just let me into heaven because I'm a good person. I've done more good things than bad things. But, you know, I've rejected him my whole life. But I'm still a pretty good person. People say that all the time. Okay, well, hell, or heaven is not for good people. It's for perfect people. But here's the problem. If heaven is for good people then what's the standard? What's good enough? And people, you're always going to say, I'm good enough, right? Because our love is self-centered. So we're always good enough. But is everybody good enough? No, probably not. I mean, we're, we're not final saying Hitler should go to heaven, right? So if, if there's a standard there and you get to set the standard, then that's self-centered love. And that is not love. Self-centered love is not love. Hey, that's self-centeredness. Hey, Love is, the standard is perfection, and God knows we can't meet that, so he provides us a way anyway to completely pay for our sins through his son Jesus. And to say, I should get to go to heaven because I'm good enough, and that's self-centered love. So even God's judgment, his his love is through that, because God is love, and that defines everything he does. So we don't want to be the guy in the second half of verse 18, where it says... uh, Fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. If you're, I mean, here's the truth. Before I became a Christian, you know, I would have said this is all made up and none of it's real. But there's always a little bit of doubt in your head because we have a natural desire to connect with God. And you, we can never say definitively, 100%, if I die tonight, I know where I'm going to go. Hey, I w- would have said, oh yeah, I'm just going to die and that's the end of it. But, there's always a little bit of fear in there because um, fear involves torment. It, we don't want to be in that situation. You don't have to fear. And even if you've accepted Jesus and we're still afraid, well, then it says your love has not been made perfect or complete. Perfect means complete. Hey, when we've fully put our faith in Jesus, we have nothing to fear in judgment, in the day of judgment, because he's paid for all of our penalty. We only have to experience God's rewards, whatever has been tested through the fire and 
through work through the Holy Spirit, then we're rewarded for that. Um, so if God is for us, says in the Bible, then who can be against us? If God has paid for our sins, then there's nothing that can separate us from him, including on the day of judgment. And uh, lastly, the, an, an outcome or result that God is love is that we'll love one another. And we're not going to go into this in a ton of detail because we already have, but in verses 20 and 21 it says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And it's also been throughout this section that our response to God is love, is for us to love one another. So I think, again, it says this over and over in uh, the, this letter that John wrote. There's a, I don't know if it's true, but I think it's written elsewhere that when John lived to be very old, probably into his 90s, was the only disciple who never uh, died for the gospel. And he was so old and they'd wheel him into churches and he would just say, love one another, love one another. And I don't, I don't know if that's true, but that's what people say. Because he says that over and over in this letter, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. And I think best summarized right here in verse 20. It says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is hugely convicting for me. I mean, if we can love each other and we're all right here, how can we love someone we don't even see? If we're, we're putting our faith in that, and yeah, it's not blind faith, there's you know, evidence and all that, but how, how, can, how can we do that? John is just saying that doesn't make logical sense. If we cannot love one, and it's not liking each other. Again, it's putting, love is not a feeling we get from someone. It's an action we do for someone. It's putting other people ahead of us, laying down our life for them. And uh, Jesus is our example for that because he died to pay for our sins. Uh, again, this is hugely important to John. This is an indicator of salvation. It says over and over, how can... We say God lives in us when we don't love one another. So, and very, very important to love one another as Christians because that should be our response to that God is love. Uh, so, God is love. And this is huge. Probably the most important description of God in the entire Bible because this changes the way we see God and the way we understand Him. If God is not love, then, I mean, none of this would happen. It would be the situation of everything else where we're trying to please God through our works. But God is love. So He loves us first. And our love has nothing to do with it. He loved us first. And this is amazing. And I just sometimes just think about this. God is love. And, uh, just again, it changes the way you see everything about, about God. And we take it for granted that He would do any of this. I mentioned this earlier. Again, God is love. We do not, He did not have to do any of this for us. We need to always remember that. Um, and for believers, if you know Jesus and you follow Him, this is what motivates us to do what He asks. And we don't do what God asks to please Him or to gain... I mean, we do to please Him. Not to, we don't do it to gain His love or to you know, prove we're worthy. We do it because He loved us first. And He empowers us to do it through the Holy Spirit. So yes, as Christians, we are to do what God asks, not to earn our salvation, but because we already have it. But if you don't know Jesus, I mean, this is really, uh, to me, one of the most evangelistic parts of Scripture, because again, it lays it all out that God is love. 
He sent his son to die for us. Then he'll send the Holy Spirit to live in you. And then you don't have to fear on the day of judgment. And then you'll be able to love people as we're supposed to, at least as close as we possibly can. And uh, so what, if you don't know Jesus, what you need to do is in verse 15. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. To agree with God that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is God, that he came to be the propitiation and sacrifice for our sin, and then God abides in him and he in God. In verse 19, it says why you should do that. We love him because he first loved us. Hugely important. Let's not forget that. We love him because he first loved us. And he goes, God is love. So let's pray. Father, the, you are just an amazing, amazing God. The love you have for us, the fact that you are love, that you sent your son to prove that, to be the sacrifice, to pay for our sins, Lord, that you didn't just say, yeah, you know, it's up to you. You can please me if you're worthy. But no, God, you are love, and you yourself came to be our sacrifice, to connect us with you, to give us your Holy Spirit, so that we don't have anything to fear. So we always know we have our salvation. We have nothing to fear in the day of judgment. So God, I pray that we would always remember that you are love and obey what you've commanded because you are love, because you loved us first, not because we love you. We love you because you loved us first. And Lord, I pray if anyone is listening, that they would understand just how amazing it is that you are love and that you would send your Holy Spirit to them right now to regenerate their hearts and open their eyes to see how loving you are because you offered the payment for our sins through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.